Thank you, uh, Richard, uh, and uh, and welcome to uh, to to this uh, this discussion. It's it's uh, really quite an honor uh, for me. I, I'm a big fan of your work, as you may have uh, read a number of my emails in the past, and uh, um, I think uh, you have a really um, you know very conversational style of writing, and and that's at the same time witty and in, insightful. Um, and which makes it uh, really a joy to, to read and uh, quite entertaining at times as well. Uh, I, I guess one of the questions, the first question I would have for you is, uh, how did uh, you discover you were a writer and, and how did you get started in this? Well, Eugene, that's very kind of you to say all those nice things about me. You don't have to. <laughs> it's, very, it's, very, it's always nice to hear that. Um, well, I think the first time I really realised that I could write was when I was preparing for my final examinations at, at Oxford and... Um, you have to write uh, your final exams. There are 11 of them. It's the, each one is three hours, and that you do it morning, afternoon, morning, afternoon, with no, with no break at all. But I found it very easy to actually write. And in fact, I was very interested that when, when the uh, grades came through for the individual papers, I did best on the papers that I knew least about which has to mean that there's, there was something going on in terms of the ability to write uh, that uh, excused my lack of knowledge. And then uh, when I went to business school in my uh, early 20s, I went to Wharton and I ended up as the editor of the Wharton Journal, which was the, um, the MBA newspaper, essentially. And uh, I wrote a column called Quaaludes and Red Wine, despite the fact that I never, ever consumed a Quaalude and actually rather disapprove of <laughs> drugs. But I certainly don't approve, disapprove of red wine. I had a lot of that. And right. the whole point about the, the, um, the column was that it was meant to be uh, not dull because an awful lot of business okay. stuff is dull. So I, okay. you know, deliberately spiced it up and I invented things. I invented conversations between people as a form of satire. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was fun. I mean, and I have a very low boredom threshold. So if I write something and I'm not interested in it, I can't, I just can't do it. And if yeah. I, if I read something that is boring, I just can't continue with the book, even though it's highly recommended and it might be, you know, it might be an absolutely excellent book. So, you know, if I, if I don't want to bore myself, why, why should I possibly bore my readers? So I do try quite hard to make it interesting. And when I review it, I don't always write interesting stuff, and when I review it and, it's, uh, and I think it's boring, then I just, um, I just start again. So, um, yeah. so that's really the, the, the background. And it's quite interesting. I think most business books are very, very dull, but there are some which are excellent, and they tend to be those who are written by journalists or by people who are very unconventional thinkers. So, for example, Malcolm Gladwell, who is a uh -huh. uh, uh, New Yorker journalist, writes excellent books. And it isn't so much that they're wonderfully insightful. I mean, they're not bad, but they are the stories in them are so well told and so well chosen that uh, you forget that he he didn't actually come up with the inside in the first place, but they, uh, but they are an absolute joy to read. And then there's our friend uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who makes a point of writing his books in. I, I can't describe it. It's it's partly academic sort of style and it's partly Brooklyn slang, 
And it's sort of, it works. It's, it's amazing, actually. And, and he's extremely rude about a lot of people, including Nobel Prize winners and other eminent personages. And some people say that they can't stomach the books because he's so egotistical. But I think he's so egotistical, he's egotistical to the point that you can't possibly believe that he believes it. And therefore, he must be <laughs> setting us up and he must be having right. a bit of fun. And uh, so I, I, I give him a pass on that. I think he's, I think he's great. And earlier, if you go back to someone like Peter Drucker, you know, Peter, uh. Peter Drucker built a reputation as being the best business writer for decades. And really... You know, if you look at it, it's pretty thin stuff, but it's so well written yeah. that, that, again, yeah. you forget that. And I'd like, finally, yeah. I'd just like to put a, in a plug for a book that, that uh, I think is uh, hugely underrated and a person who, as a business writer, is hugely underrated. And that's a guy who rejoices in the name of Walter Keechel, K-I-E-C-H-E-L, the third. And I think you have to be a very brave person to put the third on your right. book, although Americans, as you know, are quite weird in, in some respects. Um, uh, and he wrote a book about the Lords of Strategy, which includes bits on um, my old mentors, Bill Bain of, of Bain and & Company and, and uh, Bruce Henderson of BCG. And they are so well written. And actually, he also has gone and interviewed. He couldn't interview Bruce because I think he was dead by the time he wrote the book. But you know, the interviews on which he based this were clearly very, very detailed and very long, very well prepared. And then he just writes absolutely wonderful prose. So if anyone's interested in, in the whole idea of strategy or business ideas and is listening to this podcast, I'd recommend that book, The Lords of Strategy, subtitled yes. The Secret Intellectual History of the New Corporate World. But I think it's, I think he's actually onto something. So anyway, I'll give a plug mm, for him. Mm, mm. So anyway, no, it's, uh, no, it's go indeed ahead. Uh, quite, quite an exciting uh, um, read, that one, for sure. Yes. Go ahead. I was interrupting. No, not at all. You, that's your job. <laughs> You're meant to be interviewing me. I'm not, this is not meant to be a monologue. Um, <laughs> No, it's, it's interesting that all of the people that I mentioned, with the possible exception of the last one, write in hyperbole. I mean, I mean uh, Peter Drucker really was almost like a Marxist uh, propagandist. I mean, he has five things of that and seven things of that and all the rest of it. And it's, 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 it's pure journalism. And he will say, nobody believes that, you know, whatever it is. Well, actually, a lot of people do believe that, but he's, but he's always he's always writing in an extreme form. And I think that's true, that's true also of Taleb, and I, I, I do that, and I try and moderate that a bit. But you have to understand that, that business writers are, who want to be individualists are struggling against well-meaning editors. My editors are very good, um, but they all, it doesn't matter, I write, I've written for probably about five different publishing houses, uh, and whether they're based in the US or the UK or any, anywhere else, they are always trying to get you to be quasi-academic. They always insist on references. You know, you, have to, you can't say anything yeah. about adding a reference. And they all tend to tone down anything which is too idiomatic and yeah. sort of put it into business speak. And so, you know, they, they change it. 
that way, and then I change it back to what it was originally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, the, it's, it's the a, individualistic uh, kind of uh, style of uh, is, is kind of driven out that way as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. But anyway, that's my that's my diatribe against my publisher. <laughs> Probably no one will publish yeah, yeah. a book by me again. That's yeah. fine. But, okay, shall we shall we move on to your because... move on to your next question? Yes, it's, it's interesting what you say. There's only a few things that you, you like to write about and, 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 and read as well. So it, it kind of harks back to the, the 80-20 principle, yes. if you will. And, and that's kind of the next uh, kind of um, session, uh, section of this uh, discussion I'd like to have is, uh, you know, obviously it's not new. Uh, Pareto um, came out with the notion, but you've taken it a lot, lot further. And, you, you know, from economics to business, investing, lifestyle, etc. So you've really delved really deep into um, what what Alfredo kind of observed. And, and so that's, that's what I, I take from you is it's really uh, been much more enriching in that way. And, and how, how did you uh, go about, um, you know, delving so deep? Well, it's it's uh, it's very kind of you to say that, but I think it's very accurate as well. There's, there's an amusing little anecdote behind that, which is that it wasn't my idea to write a book on the eighty twenty principle. I had a uh, an editor who at that time was working for um, Pittman, or it later changed its name to various other things, but but they were basically a tr- a training and. Um, I suppose, course-based publisher when it came to business. His name was Mark Allen, and and he said to me, I think you should write a book about the 80-20 principle. And that's because I'd written an A to Z of management terms, and the 80-20 principle had half a page. And I said to him, Mark, I've written half a page on the 80-20 principle. If I really padded it out, I might write a full page or two pages. In fact, if I went completely mad about it, I might even be able to write a chapter. But there's no way I could write a book about it. There's just not enough to say. And it was quite interesting that when I, when I, he said, no, 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 have a go at doing it. And he was, he was quite right. The, the more I dug into it, the more I found it was actually a very, very deep concept. And also, in some ways, a very obvious concept. I mean, I think uh, Goethe said, uh, you know, things that are unimportant must not be at the mercy of things that are important. <laughs> in a way, you know, that, that was, uh, well, that was 100 years, not quite 100 years before, before even Pareto was writing back in 1896. And, uh, but on the other hand, that's absolutely right. You know, it's funny that in our lives, we don't realise or we don't, we forget, of course, we sort of understand it at one level, that there are some things which are profoundly important. And there's a mass of other stuff which is actually trivial. And, and so, you know, you can reduce the meaning of life to, you know, a few things like, you know, are you healthy? Do you have enough money? Uh, or, or can you do the things that you want to do with money? Um, do you have a, a loving relationship? Do you have a, a, a good family life? Uh, do you exercise to keep yourself uh, healthy and also to for enjoyment purposes do you have some other leisure pursuit which is uh engrossing for you and which enriches you and and 
and perhaps tops up your imagination a bit. And are you fulfilled at work? Now, you know, those are very, very few things. I defy anyone to say that there's something else that I've left off that list, which is hugely important. And can you think of anything else that I've, I've left off? Maybe I have. No, I think it's uh, the basic comforts of life, isn't it? Uh, having a having a happy happy life. I think that's what it really comes down to is uh, is having a fulfilling and happy life. Yeah. Uh, so but, that's health. That's uh, wealth. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the I mean the key insight on the eighty twenty principle is the the imbalance that exists in life between what we should be doing in our own interests and what we do do. And so, you know, I mean, if, if time is such a wonderful example, you know. We know that we have a limited amount of time and life energy. That's the, the one thing which, you know, basically gets exhausted and we die. Uh, so we know time and life energy are kind of important. But we do spend, we all spend a huge amount of time on stuff which isn't going to advance our interests or our objectives, isn't going to help anybody else very much, and also which we don't enjoy. Now, <laughs> it's kind of silly, isn't it? And then there are other things which are where we feel which we're in the zone, as it were. You know, we are, we are so absorbed in what we're doing that time passes very quickly. Uh, we're very fulfilled. We feel that we're being creative or we feel that we're adding some value. We feel that we're... Maybe in a loving relationship, and that that it's just wonderful. You know, there are those times when it's almost ecstatic, and it's not a very great insight, really, to say, well, you know, if if you make a list of things that you really enjoy doing and which are wonderful, you know, useful to other people, and stretch your intellect and um, maybe make money uh, or reinforce your health and things which are not on that list. And then you say, well, how much time do I spend on those? You know, and and then you discover that at work, you know, probably only a very small fraction of your time is really spent doing stuff which can be unbelievably valuable. And most of, mm-hmm. the, most of the time at work, and it doesn't matter whether you're a chief executive or a junior executive or someone that's being trained, most of the time, actually, we do stuff which somebody else could do, which is, you know, which is a relatively low-level thing. And yet yeah, there are yeah. very few people who say things like, well, you know, I don't believe that going to this meeting is going to uh, actually help me or anybody else very much, and I'm not going to come. <laughs> and of course, right. you know, people, people can't do that because, you know, you're looking at a power structure in a company and all the rest of it. But even the people who have total discretion over their time, you know, they do end up, doing things which their peers do, even though they know in their heart of hearts that they're not very valuable. So, you know, the whole point about the 80-20 principle is that it says in any particular thing that you consider, divide it into the things which are very, very productive and the things that are not very productive and compare it to something which is an input. The input might be money, the input might be time, the input might be uh, the extent to which you enjoy something. But basically, you're always trying to look at the things where you get a fantastic outcome for very little input. And so that's the way that we can be a 100 times happier or more effective. And if you, if you can grasp that concept, first of all, 
you can actually make some decisions. And decisions are some of the things that people don't make but, but should make. You know, there are few turning points in your life. You know, they are the decision, for example, to marry or to engage in a long-term relationship with someone, the decision to take a particular job, the decision to go to a particular educational establishment, the decision to live in a particular place or, as you've done, to live in a foreign country. You know, all of those decisions are going to affect your life in an unbelievable way. And yet, how much time and thought do we devote to those decisions and more important the really important decisions are often the ones that we just don't take so you know i mean i think just taking decisions is an area where you could apply 80 20 thinking to and you know that's what i try and do but the interesting thing you eugene is that even i have written all these books about 80 20 i don't actually keep to it very much either you know i mean I, it's very difficult to avoid the social pressures and the habits which we fall into, the obligations which we think we have to other people, the willingness to accept as friends or collaborators people who we actually don't really think are that great, and so on yeah. and so forth. You know, So it's a very unusual person who actually manages to live the 80-20 way or whatever, but... It's a very happy and liberated person. So it, it, is, it is something that I think everyone should, should think about. And, and even if you don't do the, the full 10 yards or whatever of that, even if you only do it for a particular part of your life, I think it can change things quite dramatically. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's this obsession of, with busyness, is there not? And, and Absolutely. That if one is busy, one is being productive. Uh, but that's that's a, a real facade. It's not a. It's not the reality. And I think it's been said. You know, busyness has become the new stupid. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. But why do we do that? I mean, I think one of the reasons we do that is that there's a primal fear of loneliness in relationships and also in work and all the rest of it. People are not happy not doing anything, and uh, therefore they do things which are which fill the gaps, as it were. But the gaps then become the, the, the great majority of the, of the time. I do think that, again, it takes a lot of discipline to say, I'm not going to do this unless it's you know, incredibly productive or unless I'm enjoying it a huge amount, and just stop. And you know, then you say, well, stop, what am I going to do then? Well, you, maybe you can think about something <laughs> that you could do right. which would be better. Uh, and you know, people just don't think... I mean, this is true of myself as well. You know, people just don't think to the extent that they should do. They don't plan their day. Yeah. They don't think about what their objectives are for the day or the week or whatever. You can take it too far, but but equally, you can just drift through following what the routines that you've always had, the conventions that other people follow, and the things that you absolutely have to do, even though you don't want to do them because you get paid to do them or because they are expected by... Uh, someone who's got some degree of, of personal power over you. So, so yes, uh, we just need to stop and think. Yeah, ex exactly. I think um, one of the one of the classics, you know, um, by Napoleon Hill, uh, "Think and Grow Rich." Rich, uh, I think he was asked once, "Why do people succeed or do not succeed?" And his response was, "People do not think." And I think that's what we're saying, isn't it? Um, we need to. We need some time out and actually observe, stand back and observe and think about what it is that is important that will actually move the needle. 
Yes, and it's not just the time thinking, it's also the intensity with which you want something, which I think is very important. I mean, I'm, uh-huh. I'm a great believer in the power of the unconscious mind, and that, that I believe is sort of, you know, one of the great illustrations of eighty twenty. even though I didn't mention it in my first book, um, which is, you know, what goes on on the surface is not actually the majority of the creativity which we exhibit or the ideas which we have or the power which we could have. That all resides in the unconscious, which is a sort of, you know, massive collation of all the experiences that we've had, all the things that we've thought, all the things we've learnt from other people and all stuff that seems to come from outside as a download from heaven, as it were. I'm not talking about a really supernatural process, but, but you know, just something where we feel inspired. Those, those things come from the unconscious, and yet they're not activated unless we really want something. And okay. I think one of the, one of the problems of, of modern life is, you know, most people 100 years ago, wanted to survive. They wanted to make enough money to eat, you know, maybe to have a, uh, a, a home and so on and so forth. It was actually quite a simple world. Now, because we live in a world of unimaginable prosperity relative to 100 years ago, um, we don't necessarily have to think that there's a particular objective. Now, of course, there should be higher objectives, and there's hierarchy and needs and all that sort of stuff. We should be self-actualizing. But in a sense, we don't need to. And so we can operate at a much lower level. The whole point is that the power of the unconscious doesn't come into effect unless we intensely want something, unless we're, you know, Uh in the old phrase, very ambitious. And the fact is that there are very few people, again, this is is an 80-20 or 99-1 phenomenon, that there's probably only 1% of the the work population that really is hugely ambitious. Well, it's not surprising that that 1% might produce 80% or 99% of the the results because they intensely want something and they're using all of the power which they have from the unconscious mind. Um, And that operates when they're asleep. It operates, you know, when they're exercising. It operates when they're shaving or whatever. So, So, you know... Again, that's that's one of the things that, that I think is very important yeah. for me. And, and really focusing on those few things that really matter. And, and you know, it's, it's the fractal nature of it in, in that you have these feedback loops of, uh, you know, that, that are positive and reinforcing, self-reinforcing. I think that that's really what it comes down to is do, doing more of what works uh, well and gives you the pleasure or the the you know the, the the benefits that you're seeking and so forth kind of self perpetuates itself it's a compounding process yeah. isn't it it's yeah. like it's like putting money yeah. in the bank and getting interest on it and yeah. uh, but the interest rate is very high so you know i think that's absolutely right yeah if unless you're really interested and curious about something you're not going to discover something new but if you really yeah. are interested and curious about something then you just go deeper and deeper and deeper into that particular hole and you end up you know if you're lucky you end up inventing something you know whether it's a theory of relativity or 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 whether it's harry potter or whatever it is that you invent you end up inventing something which changes people's lives and that comes from you know being very very deep in thinking about whatever it is that you want to think about Right. Turning to uh, SuperConnect, which uh, you and, and, and Greg Lockwood, um, uh, you know, you had uh, the observation that uh, 
what makes networking succeed is not the uh, the strong links of, of uh, you know pre-existing contact that people may have, but rather the, the weak links of random encounters that really create new opportunities and, and, and career changes, uh, entrepreneurial ventures and such. Um, yeah. I, I think there, there's really, um, you know, what, what I'm working on quite quite a bit these days is is the whole drone ecosystem that is, is up and coming. And uh, there it's really about getting many different players to come together. You know, it, we used to kind of compete in the verticals, but now it's really competition in the horizontals where you have different ecosystems being created and actually competing with one another. Uh, is that a fair extrapolation from what the SuperConnect kind of uh, thesis was, was all about? Yes, I think it is. I mean, the, mm. the point is that new knowledge comes from putting together old knowledge, but old knowledge of different types. And so therefore, unless you have the ability to uh, tap into something that might be apparently completely irrelevant that someone else has learned, but you'd find out that they're, they're actually doing it, they've, they've discovered this little technique or they've discovered this idea or they have this process of working mm-hmm. or whatever. And then you think, well, actually, that could be highly relevant in, in my sphere, which is a million miles away. The point is that you need to talk to people who are not like you. And that is so profoundly hard for human beings to do, except people who are very superficial. So the people who you really want to be talking to are not your, your extroverts who will talk to anyone in the supermarket queues or, or the people that they sit next to in, on a plane and therefore ruin the journey for, for that, that other passenger. <laughs> the people you actually want to talk to are the people who don't perhaps really want to talk to anybody. But, but, but they are people who are thinking deeply about something. And so therefore, it's a good idea. It's a very good idea to try and schedule and do this artificially, you know, who are the contacts from a previous life, a previous job, maybe college, maybe somewhere where you used to live and you're hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away from them, maybe someone whose political and social philosophy is almost the opposite of yours. You know, why, why don't you actually, if you have an excuse to sit down with that person for a cup of coffee or a drink or whatever, and just ask them, you know, what's, what's been exciting? What have they learned in the last five or ten years? <clears throat> which I think is very important for them. Yeah. You, can, you can often come up with really, really great ideas. And it's a very enjoyable process as well. I mean, you might, you might take ten of those meetings before you actually have a eureka moment. But it will happen uh, on a big, or, a big or a small scale. And the great thing about it in competitive terms is that almost nobody does it. I mean, I've written the book. I don't do it very often, actually. And um, uh, I don't know anybody who does, really, apart from, as I say, the people who will never learn because they're more interested in broadcasting than uh, in listening. Receiving, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, when... Another very interesting insight that I, I read in your 8020 individual book, um, 8020 Revolution and the Rise of Individualism. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think that's really playing out uh, today uh, with um, you know, a lot of people kind of 
tuning out to uh, kind of the the corporate rat race, if you will, and and saying, okay, well, is there more to life, and is there something that I would rather do, and and make a make a go of it as a as a, an entrepreneur. Um, what what advice would you have for for people like that who um, perhaps in their fifties, um, perhaps even later, sixties, even um, venture out on on their own after you know having uh, having had the corporate life, if you will? I think it, uh, one of the things that I would say was a, as a background to that is that it's it is so much easier to start a business today and even uh-huh. start a business that's going to survive and prosper than it was yeah. 10 or 20 years ago. You need far less money for a start because there are so, so many enabling processes that didn't exist 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. The internet's one of them, obviously, things like the access to um, YouTube and, and the access to something like a platform like the iPhone, etc. It just makes it so much easier to get yourself in front of people and to make a pitch to people at relatively low cost and at relatively low capital so that someone who has some savings you know can can do it they don't they don't necessarily have to sell their soul to a venture capitalist which is you know generally an awful experience if i'm quite honest about it so so therefore you know it's much it's much easier the terms of trade have moved in favor of the individual you can you can. Um, you don't need to do everything in the dreadful phrase that the value chain. You can buy in services from specialists and so on and so forth. So I would say that that whereas you know you might not have thought of doing something twenty or thirty or forty years ago um, because it was too risky or too expensive or because you didn't want to go into debt or whatever. Uh, it's often much easier to do that today. And in a way, if you don't do it and you've got something that you want to do, which you think could be a viable business, whether it's a sole trader business or whether it's something which you, where you actually seriously want to make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars or whatever, it doesn't matter because it's the same thing. As you say, it's fractal. You know, it's, it's the same yeah. pattern time and time again. What you're doing is trying to come up with an idea and a, a method of execution which will work, and a business formula which will actually make money. And you're, uh-huh. you're trying to do that in a field that nobody has come to before. And it's quite easy. If you read my book, The Star Principle, you see that there are yeah. ways of dividing markets and finding gaps in the market. And sometimes there isn't a big enough market in the gap, but sometimes there, there is. And, you know, there's a procedure which you can go through for saying, where is there unoccupied territory? So, for example, where could you do something that appeals to a particular set of customers? And I always use the, the example here of my betting company, uh, Betfair, where yeah. that wasn't my idea. It was an idea of a guy called Bert Black, who had been a professional gambler and was really pissed off with the idea that it was only bookmakers who could actually... Um, allow people to bet. He said, well, why can't you do it in an electronic market where people who have a particular view about which team is going to win a, a, a football game or whatever, or people, who, you know, a horse that's going to win a race or, or whatever, why can't you propose the bet to somebody else and say, I will, st- I will stand this bet because I don't think this is going to happen or this is going to happen. So, um, 
that was the idea. It was, it was, um, you know, it was a brilliant idea. But it, in a way, he was segmenting the betting market into those people who were serious about gambling, just like he'd been a professional gambler, and those people who were not. It's almost impossible to make money if the bookmakers take away 10% of each transaction. It's, it's, it's three times worse than going to a casino, because if you bet on roulette, you have a 1 in 36 chance, or 1 in 37 chance, actually, of, of, um, of winning, and you get paid out at odds which are 1% less than that. So, so you basically pay 3% to the house, and if you've ever been to a casino and played roulette for very long, you know that you're going to run out of money. So, you know, it, but it's three times worse than that if bookmakers take 10%, and on some things they take 20%. Well, you can't do that. But if you're in a situation where the, uh, the facilitating entity, which was Betfair or another electronic uh, betting exchange, was taking 1% or 2%, then you only had to be, as it were, you know, 52nd percentile or 53rd percentile inability to predict results in a particular narrow sphere, which you can choose. And so you ended up with a situation where there were a lot of people who previously would, would have wanted to be professional gamblers and had the, the contacts, the imagination and the judgment to do that. But they just couldn't do it because of the structure of the market. So you created a whole new wave of gambling for, and a whole new wave of possibility for people who actually wanted to exercise their judgment and wanted to make money from it, either from the selecting um, what was going to win or lose, but also trading, you know, being able to predict which way the market was going to go and then you can reverse the bet and make a, uh, a profit, whatever happens in the event. So, you know, it was, it was in a way, it was something, and this is what, what I think is a very generic thing it's not it doesn't apply just to gambling it applies to everything if there's something that you would like to do but the structure of the market doesn't allow it, it, it so analogously for Bert Black he couldn't exercise that there was no electronic market so he had to go to bookmakers and he knew that going to bookmakers was a mugs game but if you could actually change the structure of the market and therefore be able to do something that you wanted to do, then um, then you set up the mechanism for other people to be able to do that. You obviously have to believe that there are enough people like you to actually make to make, make a go out well, of it. Yeah. But that's a, it's a good way of thinking about what it is. And, or you can take a more abstract approach and say, well, you know, there's this market today, there's a car market. You know, if we went back, I don't know, to the 1920s or something like that, you say, well, actually, the, there are these markets for cars. There's Ford and there's General Motors and um, there's Chrysler, etc. But I'm going to specialise in 4x4s or I'm going to specialise in sports vehicles. I'm going to specialise in very high-performance things or I'm going to specialise in uh, stuff that's really cheap and cheerful. You know, the, the possibilities for segmenting markets that are growing are almost yeah. endless. And they're very well described. I mean, this, you know, the, they are... They are generic. And yet, in certain markets, those extra segments just don't exist. So it's not, it's, not, it's not a very difficult job. And it's quite an exciting job to try and think, well, where might there be a new segment which I could create? It has to have new types of customers that you're appealing to who are different from the average. It has to have economics 
for you, which enable you to make some money, and it has to deliver some extra value to the people concerned. But but it's not it's not impossible. In fact, it's it in almost any sphere, the number of opportunities which are taken up versus the number of theoretical opportunities is very minuscule. You know, there's a lot more room for entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is that which advances society because it makes better products or cheaper products. It makes the process of buying simpler. For example, you get, you know, via Amazon rather than having to go to the high street. You know, you you basically add richness. You add products like the iPhone that never existed before. And you also make it possible for people to... Um, get better value for money. So, I mean, Uber, Uber is about half the price of uh, a black cab in London, you know, and the result of that is that wherever Uber has become important, San Francisco and many other cities, you know, it has enlarged the market for um, taxis, I suppose you'd call them, you know, something like three times, ten times or something like that. And that's an enormously valuable thing to do. That's the thing which advances the wealth of society. That's the thing that creates growth. But it's also something which pleases customers and also enables the entrepreneur to make a lot of money and to, you know, have a very interesting life. So, you know, entrepreneurship relies upon individuality. Individuality is something which is not in short supply, but there's latent individuality. And all of us actually need to accentuate our individuality and create a sphere where we're not the best in that particular area, but we're the only person doing it. All right, all right. No, that's very, very powerful and, and very, very true. And, and like you say, I, I think the internet has really enabled a, a lot of this to happen faster, more efficiently, if you will, as well. Um, but the tools are there for, for people to to, uh, to to make a go of it, for sure. Um Oh, very, very interesting. The um, your, your next work, um, how to be unreasonably successful. Um, you, you had mentioned. <laughs> yes, give me a trailer. Give me a trailer for that. That's great. Um, how's how, what can we expect? Um, from, oh, you from, could uh, you you could expect a very a unique book. I won't say where it's going to be absolutely fantastic, although I believe that it will be, but. But it's, uh, there will not be a book that you have read which is like this because oh. I have taken the view that I needed to combine a business perspective with a historical perspective. So I've looked at about, a two, about 20 people actually selected from a larger list, obviously about 100 people, uh, who I think were far more successful in life than in a sense they deserve to be and hence the title un- unreasonably successful uh-huh. so you might take someone like madonna as an example of that and i hope that the that i'm not going to get sued when i say that <laughs> you know in my opinion i have to strengthen <laughs> say it's my opinion madonna has you know she's got good competent skills she's she's actually i think she's a good songwriter i think she's a good singer etc etc um but she has added to that this sort of you know sex idol perspective and she has gone into so many different areas where the whole objective of each project is to keep her face and her her you know performance in the public face 
And, you know, I think in some ways she's a bit like Donald Trump, but that you might not want to, to hear about Madonna, but you ain't got no choice. And, uh, you know, so she has taken what I think are pretty ordinary talents and leveraged them by a very clever strategy and all credit to her for that. So maybe she, she, does, she does deserve that. But, you know, she has been fantastically successful. Uh, however, in, in, you know, remaining one of the you know, people that's most well-known in popular entertainment for decades, and that's very, very rare. And she's made an awful lot of money as well. So, so you know, someone like her, for example, or at the other extreme, <clears throat> Winston Churchill, you know, a, a guy who was a consistent and utter failure through life, and I sort of list all the failures that he, or most yeah. of the serious ones anyway, that he engaged in including causing, you know, huge casualties uh, in Gallipoli in the, in the First World War, and before that trying to put a, uh, an army of people into Antwerp to stop the Germans ta- ta- taking Antwerp, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, everything that he did was a failure, and yet the guy had got a strategy and he got a view of life and eventually he, he lucked out or he absolutely the world lucked out because he realised what a threat Adolf Hitler was. And, you know, nobody listened to him for seven or eight years and then everybody had to listen to him because everything that he said about Hitler turned out to be true and nobody yeah. had believed it beforehand. So that's an extraordinary thing. And then he, you know, basically walked with destiny as he termed, termed it. He was a fantastic warlord despite being incredibly incompetent and in some ways I think that that uh, to take a modern political analogy that uh, Boris Johnson is much as much the same in, of the same ilk because he had a fantastic strategy in the last British general election which happened last week but yeah. but before that he was a total failure you know he, his own campaign manager decided that halfway through the election previously for conservative leader that he in, t- in 2015 i think it was that he was uh not suited to be prime minister so michael gove said i you know i i can't support this man even though i'm his campaign manager he then <laughs> he then became the foreign secretary and was probably the worst foreign secretary in british history yeah. and uh, but he appears to be a, a fantastically successful prime minister and he's got the right job because it it's it's it suits his particular philosophy and it suits the the strategy which he has adopted and it's it's it suits his attitudes as well all of these people i have isolated nine things that i think made them successful and they weren't necessarily things which they themselves devised or were responsible for so for for one example nearly all of these people or in fact i think i'm right in saying every single one of them had a transforming experience in their life before they became successful. And if they had not had that transforming experience, they would, we'd never have heard of them. So, you know, to take a, a, a business example, Jeff Bezos invented Amazon, but actually he didn't. Uh, he worked for a company called D.E. Shaw and Company, which was a quantitative hedge fund uh, based in New York, but realised that the internet was going to be hugely important in the early 1990s before anybody, almost anybody realised it. And so Bezos joined this firm and he worked very closely with David Shaw, who was the founder 
the eponymous D.E. Shaw. And um, Shaw had had this idea, which was developed with Bezos for the everything store on the internet. And of course, you know, it became Amazon. But, you know, if, 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 um, and I'm not saying that, that, that Jeff didn't actually strongly help to devise the plan. And then he, of course, went and made it real, which is always nine-tenths of, nine yeah. of the issue. Mm. But if he hadn't have happened to go to a headhunter one day, I think in 1992 or something like that, he was about to leave Wall Street, disillusioned with that. The headhunter said, look, this is a different sort of Wall Street firm. Why don't you go and see David Shaw? And the rest is history. You know, that was an experience which made Bezos hundreds of times more effective. And if he hadn't have had that experience, we would probably not have heard of him. And every single person in this book had some experience like that. And the point is that it was, in almost all cases, accidental. It wasn't something that was planned by the individual. It wasn't something even which was desired by the individual. It's something that happened to them. Now, my argument is that if you realise that a transforming experience is necessary for unreasonable success, you'd better ask yourself whether you've had one. And if you haven't had one, then you can begin to engineer it, which is something that none of those people actually had the benefit of because they weren't thinking about how important it was to have a transforming experience. And as I say, there are nine of these different landmarks. And if people want to... I'm not saying that, you know, you read the book and then you become a billionaire, but, but if you read the book and then uh, actually say that you, you do want to be, be unreasonably successful, which requires a different mindset and requires you to make certain sacrifices and perhaps a hundred re- out of 100 readers there might be 95 people who say, no, I don't want to do that. But if you're one of the 5% that does, I'm not saying that you stand a chance of being... I'm not saying that you're certain to become unreasonable unreasonably successful. I am saying that the chances of you doing it go up by That's a very fantastic yeah. amount. And so I think, it's, I think it's a very, very helpful book. But most of the book is stories of famous people or not famous people, actually, uh, and, um, and, how they, and how they made it because they actually, as I put it, visit these nine landmarks. And um, apart from anything else, I enjoyed writing the book enormously. It's a book I've enjoyed writing by far the most and i hope that people will enjoy reading it so that's the that's the commercial the ad for <laughs> the ad for my book and i think we've run out of time <laughs> but it also says that one needs to go through some suffering uh, you, you talk about transformative experience and then ultimately also you need to be adaptable agile and, uh, yeah there are some attitude things that, that i mean one of the things is it, that that is that is also extremely interesting is that all of these people had really major setbacks in their career and um, so, so, so that in many cases they were, they were on the verge of giving up or they decided to do something different, which might have been the right decision anyway. But, but um, you know, suffering is necessary. And I remember yeah. someone once said to me in my mid-twenties, you know, the problem with you, Richard, is that you've never suffered. You've never had a serious setback in your career. It's just been sort of, you know, one great thing after another. And... Unless you have a serious setback, you're not going to really be successful. You might be mildly successful, but you need that. And then 
two or three years later, I was working at the Boston Consulting Group and, and sort of virtually got fired. So that was yeah. a bit of a setback, and, but it was enormously helpful. And yeah. so, you know, I mean, I would say to anyone that's suffering a huge setback at the moment, whether it's personal, psychological, business-related or whatever, rejoice because actually, yeah. uh, you know, that will make it possible for you to really make things in the future. It might, it might be deeply unpleasant, but, uh, but it's a springboard for the future if you understand that. So the cloud has a silver lining, if you will. It, uh, the cloud has more than a silver lining. The, the, <laughs> the, the cloud disguises those sunlit uplands uh, which are coming. And indeed, it's true, isn't it? And I'm looking out at the weather here and it's pouring the rain. But I know that tomorrow it's going to be sunny and it will be so much nicer because uh, everything's green and so forth. So, yes, life works out one way or another. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, Richard, I, I think we've come to uh, to the uh, the one hour. It's been a, a great uh, discussion. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm looking forward to your, your new book. Uh, and when is it coming out? Uh, June okay. next year, June 2020, How to Be Unreasonably Successful, published... Uh, by Little Brown in the UK and by Entrepreneur Press in the US. And it's the first time I've ever managed to persuade the, the, um, the US and the non-US uh, publishers to produce the book on the same day. So, oh, well, so in, okay. June, in June, everybody can have access to this wonderful book. <laughs> it's thank... available on Amazon, I take it? Or... Oh, yes, it will be available <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> uh, anyway, I apologise to anyone listening to the podcast for the commercial. I find that quite d- deeply distasteful. But I tell you, um, yeah, read the book. You'll, you'll benefit. <laughs> great, great. Great, Richard. Um, thank you very much for the time again. Uh, it's, it's been a, a real honor. Um, hope to have a have another opportunity at some point. And um, I, I'm, you know, as I build my, my business as well, it's um, really uh, an interesting time for sure uh, for for a lot of people uh, of my age. Uh, a lot of folks uh, looking at uh, you know what what's what's the next step, what's in in their journey of life, if you will. So I think you're. Uh, your books and insights have been uh, really welcome for, for me and, and for, for others uh, as well. Eugene, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I thought your questions were great and absolutely the right note to finish on. Ever onward and upward, however bleak life appears to be, it can be a hundred times better. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, have a great uh, rest of the day and uh, we'll look forward to, uh, to hearing more of you. Thanks, Eugene. Bye-bye. Bye now.